from him who was divided from his heavenly Father by death and hell on the cross, so that we would forever be united to him. From him be all grace and mercy and peace. Amen. Our text for this morning is our gospel lesson, especially these words of Jesus. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. This is our text. We modern Americans are mistaken. Maybe it's because it says it in the United States Constitution, but we firmly believe that life is really just all about the pursuit of happiness. And those of us who believe in God believe that he exists to help us in that pursuit of happiness. And that's why, if we're really being honest with ourselves, most of our prayers are prayed for things like healing and favorable weather and economic growth and reconciliation and wisdom and strength and even peace. And don't get me wrong. There's nothing at all inherently wrong with praying for those things. But there's another side of the coin that Jesus makes very clear in these very difficult words of his in today's gospel lesson, where he says, in no uncertain terms, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. That doesn't sound like a 100% happy life every day of every week, does it? We all want peace in our lives, and we rightly pray for it, but it isn't always what God provides, as we know full well as we experience life on a daily basis. The words of Jesus in today's gospel lesson confront some of our very deeply held beliefs about God and our desire for peace. The presence of God doesn't always bring unity in the world, and it turns out that peace is a much, much deeper concept than just two people or two countries or two churches or even two Christians getting along. Far too often, we see peace as the absence of war or conflict or arguments, and that's it on the surface. But peace isn't just a feeling or an emotion. Peace is the presence of God, especially and even when there is division and conflict. And there's plenty of that to go around. Maybe the saddest kind of division is the kind of division that Jesus talks about in today's gospel lesson. It's the division that comes because of him And his teachings. Mom, I just don't believe what the Lutheran church teaches anymore. Dad, I really don't think the Bible is God's word. It's just a bunch of human teachings. Honey, I'm not going to go to church with you anymore. It's just not my scene. As a pastor, I've witnessed this kind of division far more than I care to admit, the kind that Jesus speaks about, and we all see it in all the divided denominations where social culture has taken the place of biblical theology. 
I've even seen division in our own Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, where there's division over policies and procedures, and yes, even sometimes over biblical theology and interpretation. Sadly, I've seen it in families. People have sat in my office and cried about it. We've prayed about it together. I've even experienced it myself when people have left this very congregation, dividing themselves from me as their pastor and from this church as their own by chasing after false teaching rather than clinging to the inspired word of God. These words of Jesus are jarring to us. I've not come to bring peace but division. That doesn't sound like Jesus. But for those who were originally there to hear Jesus' words, they were not maybe quite as jarring as we hear them today because they come right in the middle of the narrative in Luke's gospel where Jesus is doing some traveling. It's called the travel narrative. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's teaching the crowds. And as he's teaching the crowds on his way to his death and resurrection, the language that Jesus uses is anything but flowery and soft. Very much like Jeremiah in our Old Testament lesson for this morning, Jesus is calling the people right there in front of him to turn from their sins and to repent. And as a result, divisions begin to arise. Already at the beginning of the previous chapter, the religious leaders have heard Jesus and they have divided themselves from him. They have rejected his message. They begin plotting to kill him. And in their refusal to repent, they separate themselves from God. And I imagine that if they had family members who were following Jesus, they would have been separating themselves from them too. Well, Jesus is still in the business of dividing. He has come to divide us from our sinful thoughts and actions and habits. He has come to divide us from false views of the world and from distortions of his word. When some members of a family hear and believe and and others do not, inevitably, division is going to arise in that family. As Jesus says, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. It's our own turn to repent of a shallow and cursory allegiance to God's word. It's our own turn to repent of failing to fully share and study God's word in our homes, to pass it down faithfully to the next generation. It's our own turn to repent of the sin that divides us and the people we love from the truth. It's our own turn to repent of being shy and subdued when it comes to lovingly pointing out error and sin when we see it in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and in our world. Jesus calls us today to repentance from being faithful to his word. The term that theologians use to describe Jesus' work of bringing division is the term alien work. It's Jesus' alien work. It's kind of like saying this is something Jesus doesn't really necessarily like to do, but it's something that he must do, that he has to do. 
On the other hand, the word or the term that theologians use to describe the way that Jesus is always working to unite us to himself is his proper work. It's what we think of when we think and when we remember that Jesus, most importantly, has come to rescue us and to unite us to himself. And we see this proper work. This good work, this pleasing work, just a few chapters later, as Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And then Jesus prays for you. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. The book of John records this prayer as Jesus calls for unity amongst his people and unity with him. As we read through this gospel lesson, it doesn't seem like there's very much good news in it. But it is there. If you look closely, early in the gospel lesson, it's where Jesus says this, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And the baptism that Jesus speaks about there is his suffering and death for the sins of the world. And he is distressed by the sin he sees, the hopelessness of people, the division that sin brings. And so he is soon to be baptized in the most unimaginable baptism of all as he hangs dead on the cross, divided from his father in death and suffering the pangs of hell, separated from the love of God. He is baptized into death so that you and I are baptized into life. When you and I are baptized, God separates us from our sin. He unites us to himself. Our old self in baptism is drowned. It dies. And because we are baptized into his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus takes all of our sin to himself. He hangs with that burden on the cross, and we are then clothed in the white robes of his righteousness. In that moment and forever after, Jesus says, I love you. I forgive you. I will never leave you or forsake you. You may have trouble in this world, but take heart. I have overcome this world. Since you have been united with me in my death, you will also be united with me in my resurrection. A long time ago, a pastor was having dinner with a friend of his, a young man. They were talking about the young man's father who, as he was growing up, was very stern, had like a, a dictator's kind of thumb hold on him as he grew up, was very stern and exacting. And the son said that when he had been in the army, he had made a terrible mistake, and so he was let go from the army with a dishonorable discharge, and he was sure that his father was going to be incredibly angry, outraged. 
But he also felt that he had to tell his father what had happened. So I did, the son said. I wired him and told him what happened, and he sent a telegram back. The telegram had three sentences. I will stand by you no matter what happens. I will be there in the morning. Remember whose you are. Right at this very moment, Jesus stands with you. He is looking you in the eye, and he is saying the same to you, even and especially if you are experiencing earthly kinds of division in your life. He is saying, I will stand by you no matter what happens. I will be there. Remember whose you are. We already possess this unity with Jesus by virtue of our baptism. We will experience it even more fully yet again today as we receive his body and blood in the Lord's Supper. And we look forward to the day when we are fully, completely, and perfectly unified with him in the life that is to come. In Jesus' name, amen.